everybody, welcome back to the show. Cameron English here with you, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by the lovely, the thoughtful Dr. Josh Bloom, Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences. How are you today, Josh? Well, um, I'm talking to a, a liar, first of all, <laughs> because lovely and whatever false term you used along with it, uh, you know, my, my heart almost stopped when I heard this because <laughs> just don't hook yourself up to a lie detector and say stuff like that. Okay. Josh, we you, both know it's wrong. You just embody the best of what New York has to offer. You're just, I do. You're sharp, uh, I, you're witty, you're, you're condescending in all the right ways. It's just, I just, it's a blessing to work with you. If I could, um, use a certain word, I would tell my own, my favorite New York City joke, but I just can't do it. <laughs> okay. But it's pretty good. Well, instead of that joke, let's talk about uh, these latest stories that folks have been reading on our website. So you're the author of the first one. I wrote the second one. Your story is called, Tumors Have a Fungal Biome, Implications for Powerful New Cancer Screens, which is... Uh, Interesting stuff. I think it's always good when we uncover new new information about cancer. And then we're going to close out the episode with a recap of my appearance on Dr. Phil, where I had the great pleasure of debating a couple of so-called fat acceptance advocates. Always uh, interesting to be on Dr. Phil. <laughs> okay. But first up, uh, tell us about uh, tumors that have fungal biomes. What does that mean, Josh? Well, uh, let me start with uh, blood tests for uh, for cancers. And these are being used now. They're tumor markers where they're looking for specific proteins associated with different tumors. And, and it's a whole bunch of them. Like, I could be wrong, but I think it's something like 50 different markers. Don't quote me on that. And um, these are useful for people that have cancer because it can determine the uh, the course of treatment that's used. It's also useful for people who are at high risk for cancer that might catch something before any MRI or CAT scan would pick it up. So uh, it, it's clear that um, there's a lot of work going into I won't even call it early cancer diagnosis. It's, it's possibly more accurately called pre-cancer diagnosis or, or the possibility of cancer diagnosis. So this is great stuff. <clears throat> um, but then I ran across an article where, you know, th this may be, I mean, it, this is speculative. This, this is possibly Nobel Prize material. Uh, what some of the um, scientists at the uh, Weizmann Institute in Israel came up with. And just to keep things simple, they found that different cancers have um, a a fungal biome within them, which I had never even heard of before. So what, what, what are, 
what are fungi doing inside tumors? Why are they there? Uh, makes an intriguing question and also makes for the possibility of uh, different types of treatment. But right away, um, what's of most interest is that more than half of uh, the tumors that the got these uh, scientists uh, studied had a fungus associated with them. And more importantly, different tumors had different fungus profiles. So, um, yeah, this was like a jaw-dropping moment because nobody has, I don't know if anybody's ever thought of this before. I certainly haven't read about it. Now, there's a, there is a precedent um, that uh, the same group published uh, a paper on the bacterial biome within tumors uh, a couple of years ago. But I think this one's more interesting because, uh, first of all, it points out that there is a fungus in, you know, at least half the tumors, maybe more. What's it doing there? What's, the, what's its purpose? And what's uh, the immediate benefit, assuming this holds up, and it should, because this is a peer-reviewed article in, in um, Nature by... Uh, a very sharp group, so I, I don't think this is going to anybody's going to find mistakes here. The, the question is, um, if you can uh, identify the DNA of particular fungus, which they can do, uh, is this useful as? an earlier or a more accurate screen to take a look at what's going on within your body. Because it's, it's certainly novel and it, it's not intuitively obvious that there would be fungus living inside tumors, but there is. And so it, it obviously suggests uh, either drug discovery or maybe even gene editing as um, a, possible, a possibility, but that's way down the road. Right now is um, most important would be, can you really pick up cancers and tell which ones they are before they even amount to any uh, significant tumor? And that's what I thought was the most interesting thing, because this is just um, it's kind of unheard of. And uh, I liken it to the, uh, the discovery of uh, H. pylori causing ulcers and, and stomach cancer, uh, something that was laughed at when it was first proposed, and all that did was win the Nobel Prize for the guys that discovered it. So... I can't say that this is Nobel Prize material, but uh, it's it's novel and it's really fascinating. 
it sounds like, again, assuming it holds up, as you said, it sounds like the kind of idea that is not to use a cliche, but that's groundbreaking. It, it might fundamentally change how we think of cancer. So it, here's one example. You write that the presence of specific fungal DNA in the blood samples of each patient was correlated with one of the 35 cancer types studied, creating an atlas that mapped the fungus with the tumor type. So if I understood your article correctly, these 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 fungi are circulating in, in the blood of these patients um, and you could identify them much sooner than you could identify a tumor, right? So potentially you could hit this with drugs much sooner and possibly save people's lives. Is that the basic idea for, for diagnostics here? Uh, I think that's the most uh, logical and fundamental use for this. But I, I think it's going to go beyond that. Uh, because, um, you know, who would have thought that there was a fungal biome within a tumor? It's, it sounds like a science fiction book. But, you know, they, they publish a map where you, where you see a pretty clear indication of different profiles for different fungi in different types of tumors. And... I can't exactly read the map because I'm not smart enough, but you, you, you do see a what looks to be a different profile, a very different profile, when you're comparing lung, breast, ovarian tumors. And um, so uh, you know, that it, it's, this is possibly groundbreaking and maybe even probably I'll go that far. So final question, uh, do they have any idea of what role these these fungi might play in the development of these cancers? Because you, and, and you're following the lead author here, but you, you put forward the idea that it might be useful to treat these cancers with antifungal treatments. You, so do we have any, like mechanistically, what's going on? What role are these fungi playing? No, no nobody knows. <clears throat> and... The use of uh, antifungal agents to treat cancer, I think it's probably too simple because there's no uh, indication what comes first, the fungus or the cancer. Uh, is the fungus just a, a, a byproduct of, of the cancer, which is unimportant? So th this may turn out to be nothing more than uh, a screening tool. But people will be studying this like crazy now because this if if somehow you can treat or prevent the fungus then that opens up a whole new avenue for uh, very early treatment of cancer but this is way down the road and i'm just absolutely speculating about it so i would say let's pay attention to the the screen first compare it to the tumor marker screen and see where that is. And that's really the story as it stands now. But it's exciting and it's, uh, it's, it's crazy sounding enough for it to be true. Yeah, that, that, to me, that seems why it might be true, you know, and that's just me uh, making an assumption. We don't know. For all, for, for what, all we know now is that this is interesting. It could lead somewhere potentially very significant. 
but for the time being, if crazy Joe Mercola or um, anyone else on the internet tries to sell you antifungal treatments as a, cancer, as a cancer therapy, just be forewarned. We told you that they are full of it. <laughs> uh, before we close, um, I usually get a whole bunch of very smart comments after these articles. Here's an exception by somebody called Orchid Potato. I hate fungus, yuck. <laughs> now, this is not useful. <laughs> but I had to reply to it, and I said, same here. I won't eat mushrooms because they gross me out, and they're related to athlete's foot. And that's not <laughs> useful either. If you want to get down and wrestle in the mud, Josh Bloom will get down there with you. Just be forewarned. If you enter our comment section and your name is Orchid Potato or any other kind of hybrid of a, uh, a tuber and, a, and an am- animal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, you got that right, Daddy-O. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, with that very serious and thoughtful discussion out of the way, let's go on to uh, my appearance on Dr. Phil. And uh, I have to say, Josh, when, when I got the invitation to do this, I thought I was on that old MTV show, Punked, right? It's just, it's not something that you start your day thinking about. Like, oh, it's Tuesday. I'm going to do some research. I'm going to get this article finished. And then I'm going to get an email from the producers of, of Dr. Phil. It's just, it's crazy. But let me, let me run down some background and I'll give you some, some preliminary thoughts I had on the show. And then Josh has seen the episode. He actually got to see it before I got to see it. So I'm curious to get Josh's thoughts on this, but Back in August, Bill Maher, the comedian, uh, uh, t- talk show host on HBO, he did a segment on his show about the fat acceptance movement. And, and these are activists who basically want society to utterly rethink the way we treat obesity. They don't want it to be considered a serious health condition that can jeopardize uh, your existence, frankly, they want it to be thought of as this victim identity, right? Obese people are just obese because they are. It's not because of anything they've done or anything they haven't done. Um, and so you need to accept them as they are. You need to stop trying to uh, tell them to change their behavior. And they're doing some crazy things. I mean, they're starting to pressure doctors not to weigh their patients or talk to them about the dangers of weight. Um, They are pressuring TV shows to have overweight cast members and to have plus size friendly wardrobes. And there's so many other examples, right? You, you see magazine covers with, with overweight models on them and not just overweight, but obese in many cases. So the stakes here are very high. And I I say this, say this as someone who is obese for most of my, my childhood and teenage years, um, this is, this is very, very serious, right? We wouldn't say we need smoker acceptance. We need smoker liberation activists to push society to think more positively about smoking. You know, same thing with, with drug use or any other uh, irresponsible behavior, right? And, and, I, and I know this seems controversial today, but overeating and not exercising, those are irresponsible behaviors, and they're within your control to change. So I wrote an article defending Bill Maher, and I just said, even if you don't like his jokes – that's fine. Um, scientifically speaking, he's correct. Everything he said was was backed up or could be backed up by evidence. And that was what my article was. So yeah, this time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, we're not like Bill Maher apologists over at ACSH. We've attacked him for some of his comments about vaccines, 
and some of the other kooky statements he's made over the years. But on this issue specifically, he was absolutely correct. And so the, his his episode aired. He got a bunch of pushback on Twitter. And so me being the uh, the the iconoclast that I hope to be, I defended him. <laughs> That's and, a big uh, word. Yeah, I, I, it is a big word. I like to throw a sexy word in there every once in a while so people know that I'm I'm a sharp guy. I'm loving it. But uh, but 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 anyways, um, so I wrote this <laughs> I wrote this article, and uh, the producers of Doctor Phil saw this. I don't know where they found it or anyways, but they saw the article and um, they emailed us. And so our our media director reaches out to me. He goes, "They want you on Doctor Phil," and so we deliberated um, amongst ourselves to see if it was a good idea or not. And then I went and did it, and uh, it was it was an incredible experience. I'll I'll never forget it. And uh, I was expecting to be the heel, to be the bad guy, and I was happy to play that role if I had to, but I didn't have to. Um, they had a, they had this married couple on there. One, the the woman is a a plus size model, and she's a body positivity activist, and her husband was there for moral support. And it was me, a nutritionist and a physician, basically um, critiquing the, these arguments about why body positivity is is a good thing. So. Um, I have some other thoughts, but Josh, I'll stop talking for a second. Give me your impression of the episode overall. Well, you were fantastic. I mean, I'd be a babbling idiot if I went on a talk show. I wouldn't wouldn't remember, like, if I was wearing pants or not. So uh, I don't know how you you keep so cool under these conditions, but I nominate you to do all of them, excuse me, in, in the future and me to do none of them. Um, but I was disappointed in, uh, how they allotted the time because you had more to add you and the physician who was, she was dead on, um, that the most important information came from the two of you and you got about a minute or so, and they spent 10 minutes talking to the women about how they felt, about being overweight and all this other woke stuff. And I, I, that did, you know, I mean, you came across, across great, but they should have really focused more on the uh, intersection of science and BS and, and woke words and whatever, uh, than they did, uh, but um, I don't know if you felt that way. I, I thought you got cheated a bit. You know, I, I was expect, I didn't know what to expect exactly, but I was prepared for them to edit the episode down and cut out some of the material. And that's what they did. So there was much more to the conversation. Um, you know, at one point, predictably, the, this woman, her name's Lexi Nimmo, I believe is how you pronounce her name. But at one point, she started talking about how BMI isn't, uh, you know, it doesn't really give you an accurate portrayal of somebody's health, which is, is mostly false. You know, it's not a perfect tool, but I, I address that and they cut that out. And then we talked more about the balance between how you view yourself as a person and your, your self-worth and how you think of your weight. And I got to weigh in on that. They cut that out. So there was a lot of the show that got cut out. Um, so I did get to say more, but you're right. They kind of they kind of gave everyone like a minute, maybe a minute and a half of, of material. Um, but what I did get to say, I was happy with. So you know, they 
initially they tried to say, look, you know, there's these new studies that show that, uh, you know, overweight people or obese people are more likely to survive heart attacks and they do better in uh, post-surgical recovery. And, you know, some of these, they're, they're really spurious claims, but I, but I got to, Dr. Phil brought me into the conversation, which was pretty cool. You know, it's, you'll, there's nothing like it. I promise everybody, if Dr. Phil looks over you and goes, now you've been a science journalist for about 10 years. Am I reading the research correctly here? It's just such a weird, it's such a weird conversation to have, but I got to jump Damn in. Damn good Dr. Phil imitation right there. Oh, thanks. You see body image and self image, they tend to go together. They shouldn't, but they do. So I got to, I got to jump in and I, and I looked right at these two and I said, listen, I've been overweight. I know what it's like to be mistreated because of my size, but what you're saying about the science is wrong. And then I just pointed to a meta analysis in the new England journal of medicine and they tracked 4 million deaths and they looked at, looked at them in relation to BMI. And they said, well, the majority of these, uh, took place in, in people who would be considered morbidly obese and they were primarily due to heart disease. And I think diabetes and then a few other things after that. So my point was just that you should love yourself. You should respect yourself, but you can't carry your view of yourself into scientific conversations where you're misleading people on national television. And, and that was my message. I was happy to say that. And I got a little bit of criticism after the fact, which we can talk about, but I thought it was important to push that message very, very clearly in front of his audience, which is like two and a half million people. Yeah. And you, you did great on that. <clears throat> But the part that you really couldn't talk about is uh, when it comes to calling out BS, uh, you know, there's good science, there's bad science, and of course you're up on this topic and you know what's important. I mean, there's no doubt that type 2 diabetes and obesity are intimately related uh, so I, I wish they'd given you a little more time to be technical and also be critical of the feel good versus be healthy um, paradigm because that that's kind of the essence of the whole show. And fine if if women want to feel good because they're fat, skinny, or whatever, that's fine. I don't care. Uh, but they, um, be, because they happen to be overweight and think it's okay, they, they don't get to, they don't get the final say on this matter. And I, I thought they gave the final say to the, you know, the, the woman and her husband at, at the expense of you. And that, that's my really, you know, that was my biggest problem with the show. Yeah, I found that a little bit frustrating. Um, and, and you understand going into it that this is a show for a general audience. And so they're going they're going to appeal to that that emotional angle and they're going to try to hook people with that storyline. Um, overall, though, I have to say I was quite satisfied because Dr. Phil came out and, and you can see this in the episode when you watch it. He came out, he gave them an opportunity to tell their story and, you know, why they're, why they're body positivity activists and all that. And then he said, you know, I have a real problem with what you're saying about the science. So he came out swinging. Yeah, and, that and was it, great. It was very clear. And again, Dr. Phil says some things that make sense, says some things that don't make so much sense. But on this issue, just like Bill Maher, he was uh, 100% correct, and he was reading off the results of studies to them, and he gave the physician who uh, 
he was a, an emergency physician at Cedar Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles for like 20 years or something. So, the, you know, he let the physician talk plenty, um, which was great. And then they had a woman who stood up in the audience because the audience is sitting right behind you. It's a really, it's a really odd setup because I've never been on TV, but I've never seen anything like this before either. But this woman stood up and she said, uh, you know, I am the, I'm the warning to young people who are overweight. She said, I, I have to have two knee replacements. Uh, I've had bypass surgery. Uh, I'm type two diabetic. And it's all because I did not listen to the warnings that people gave me when I was younger. And so she looked right at, right at Lexi and she's like, you are on a dangerous path. And so that was, that was great too. Um, overall, like I said, the message was good. I, the thing that really drove me nuts, Josh, and I didn't get a chance to address this is Lexi started to talk about once it was clear she couldn't win the science argument, um, she went to this whole idea of, well, you know, most doctors are middle-aged white men and we need different perspectives. Yeah. A couple of alarm bells there, maybe. Yeah. 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 One or two alarm bells for sure. But, but I, the way I, I did, I discussed this on another podcast I do. And the way I pointed it out was to say, look, if I was to get on here and say, um, you know, smoking two packs a day, it's very harmful. It increases your risk for lung cancer and stroke and heart disease uh, and heart attack and COPD, you really shouldn't smoke uh, really at all. And if Josh was to say, well, you're just a middle-aged white man. I, why, why do I care what you think? Everybody would look at that and go, well, what does that have to do with uh, the price of tea in China? You know, it doesn't make any sense because the facts are the facts. And that's what bothers me most about this fat acceptance movement is that it's, it's primarily driven by a disdain for science, right? They, they look at the world and they go, well, that's just your perspective. You're just trying to maintain your power and you're trying to oppress fat people and you're using these facts, quote unquote, right. to do it. Uh, and that's what bugs me most, but go ahead. Once you go there, it's, at least in my mind, it's an admission that you've been beaten in the argument. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's pulling the BS, white person, middle age, whatever card, which is so what? Um, I wish I was middle-aged and white. I think I'm white, but I'm not middle-aged anymore, which is irrelevant. But, you know, to go after that nonsense and uh, you know, to, to, to fall back on that just sh struck me as, her, as, as that she was beaten um, in the debate and just, you know, w went to the... Uh, the fallback position. And uh, I don't know if people will realize this, but it, I realized it right away, as did you. Yeah, the whole thing, um, it's just preposterous. I, I don't know what else I can say about it. it it's, it's this weird phase we're going through as a culture where we're supposed to prioritize the way people feel and, you know, their lived experience over the facts. And it's just... It's just dangerous, you know, because once you start doing that, you're you're effectively picking and choosing when you're going to utilize the scientific method, you know. So we're not going to use it in this case because, it, you know, it harms overweight people. And we're not going to use it in this case because it harms this other uh, marginalized group. And then pretty soon you're not making policy based on the evidence that you have. And you're not making individual decisions based on the risks that you're going to encounter in life, right? You're You're basically living with a blindfold on. And that's so harmful. And I think that's why 
I went ultimately, you know, because I was worried the whole time. And I, and again, I prepared for this. I was worried that they were going to bring, you know, four overweight women on, and then they were going to have me sit there and try to explain why, why I hate big people, <laughs> you know, or um, beat you up maybe. Yeah. I, you know, I was ready for that, but that's not what happened. I just, um, I guess I, to a certain extent, I'm grateful that Dr. Phil took the approach that he did because he could have very easily taken the fat acceptance angle and, earned himself all kinds of awards and, and, uh, and praise from popular culture. And he didn't do that. And I suspect that has something to do with the fact that he's old and he's going to retire pretty soon. And so he's more or less just saying what he thinks and nobody can really do anything about it. <laughs> well, yeah, Dr. Phil's like a roulette wheel. You, you really <laughs> never know what, what's going to come out. But uh, let me pick up on one thing you said uh, about feelings and this is not new. About 10 years ago, I read an article written by um, an activist for, for deaf people. And in the article, they talked about being deaf is not a disability. And um, most deaf people would not want to get the hearing back. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a bunch of cow excrement <laughs> because that's just nonsense. All right. That's, that's not too different from what you were just discussing. Uh, come on, seriously. The only reason to be deaf is to not to have to listen to the, the drug commercials on TV and I, I'd gladly be deaf temporarily uh, when those things are playing because <laughs> they make me want to puke. <laughs> but um, the, the two things are related because uh, feeling good has definitely taken over from doing the right thing and and using the best medical knowledge and logic that's available. I, I, I'm sure I won't get an argument from you on that. <laughs> no. Um, one other thing I wanted to address, there was a, there was another gentleman on the panel. His name is John Glaude and he's a, he's a YouTube celebrity and he, uh, I, I don't know, five years ago or so he weighed like 350 pounds or something. He lost 180 pounds and he started documenting his weight loss progress on YouTube and these different videos and going over his workout routine and it, and it, his story just went viral. So he ended up on the Ellen DeGeneres show and he just, he became sort of like a commentator on obesity and weight loss and all this stuff. And, uh, his content's good is his YouTube channel is called obese to beast. If you want to look him up, but his criticism of the show, interestingly enough, was that it was too scientific that, you know, we, we had this, it was the four of us really, cause he was technically on the same side I was. So there's these four people uh, all criticizing this this married couple. And he said, you know, people don't need to be lectured about being fat. They know that they're fat. Um, the audience doesn't really care about all of this technical scientific information. And so we need to focus on, you know, treating people with kindness and helping people who want to lose weight, uh, lose weight. And and I, I appreciate that message to a certain extent. You know, if there's someone who who is struggling to to slim down, then that's the message they need to hear. But for these people 
going on TV and making TikTok videos and writing magazine, writing in magazines and right there in front of a mass audience, they're saying obesity is not a health problem. That absolutely has to be criticized, you know? So I think what he was there to do was to give his perspective as a YouTuber, which was great. Um, but I was there for a different reason. I was there to say, you know, you're not allowed to talk about this, um, in a way that's so misleading and frankly dishonest. I, I, I hated that whole, uh, that whole part about him. Uh, it was self-serving. It was a waste of time. And, you know, he's not, it, it wasn't, I want you people to be ha uh, healthy. It's look what I did. Because let's face it, like one in a million people can do that. So I, I, uh, he came across as kind of sleazy to me. And then they used a lot of time <clears throat> watching this guy in the gym, which I don't care about. So I, I had a negative impression of that because it, it, it had no useful uh, purpose, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, you know, I, I understand that. I just think it was good to have different perspectives. I agree with you. I, I wish there was more time to interact with what he said and what other people said. But I, on, as we wrap up here, I, there's one note of encouragement. I went and I looked at uh, some of the comments on the YouTube clips because the show's online. You can find it. You can find the few minutes where I'm talking. And I was just curious how people reacted because science communication is really important to me. And I strive to balance you know, interesting storytelling and trying to relate to people um, with giving them solid scientific information as best as I can, you know. So I don't want to just hit people over the head with a phone book full of statistics. I want to illustrate to them why, you know, a, a certain perspective is more valuable than another. And some of the comments I saw were encouraging. You know, one one person on the YouTube video quoted what I said, which was, you should love yourself and accept yourself but don't, don't let that bleed over into these scientific issues because that's just not, that's not okay to do that to people. And this woman said that he said it perfectly. And then another person said he showed compassion while he was delivering these facts. And that's all, all I was going for. You know, I wasn't attempting to convince them. I don't think that was possible. I think they're too far gone. Um, but there was a lot of people watching that probably saw what I said and, and hopefully went, you know, I can appreciate what he's trying to do. Well, it was obvious <clears throat> that you you weren't after anyone. Uh, you had your own story. Uh, you, you came across as compassionate and knowledgeable. Uh, I think you did a fantastic job. So I'm not at all surprised to see positive comments like that. Oh, shucks, Josh. You guys, all I want in this life is Josh Bloom's approval. And uh, now that I have it, I think I'm going to call it a career. Um, oh, one thing I should mention before we move on, Josh, is that people in our comments section, they were saying, great job. That was awesome. You think we could get Dr. Bloom on there to talk about the opioid epidemic? And I just responded. I said, that would be some next level entertainment to get Josh Bloom on Dr. Phil. And then people were starting to say that would be a combination of Jerry Springer and the WWE. And I think that's absolutely true. You could get on there and you could, you could both educate and entertain people because they put you up there opposite uh, Andrew Colidney or uh, uh, Fu Fu Berman or whatever her name is. 
and you would just you would just lay waste to everything they said. And I think that would, would be terrific. Would you put up my bail if that ever happened? <laughs> I would. I would. I would. Uh, I'd start a GoFundMe and I'd throw a sizable donation in there to say, "Hey, let's get Josh out of prison because <laughs> he did the world a great service by." <laughs> Plus, they run out of bleeps. I think they only have a certain number per show. And, you know, like every other word would get bleeped. And um, not that I'm not proud of that, of course. But I, I think the message might, might get diluted a little bit by the bleeps. <laughs> I think you might overwhelm that five-second delay and a few of the F-bombs would slip through. <laughs> F, Yeah. All right, friends, we're going to leave it there. Uh, if you want to get these articles that we talk about on the podcast, you just go to our website. It's acsh.org. There's a subscribe button up at the top. Click on that, punch in your email address. Three times a week, we will send you the stories that we publish. And the ones that uh, you read the most, we talk about on this show. So if you want to understand what we're going to talk about and be a little more informed, uh, read the stories and then come listen to the podcast. Follow us on, on Twitter. We're at ACSHorg and Josh Bloom's very perfectly uh, focus group name is just Josh Bloom ACSH, at Josh Bloom ACSH. Very clever. You can, you can get all his commentary. It's very clever indeed. But in any case, thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>